1: This season,
0: we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network. Available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what up? Welcome
2: in. I'm Doug Godley. This is all... All and uh, man, we got a great guest for you on this episode. Actually, this two-part episode. David Klaske joins me. He's the head coach at NYU, and uh, I think you'll be impressed by his journey and also the people who have affected him along the way, and what it's like to finally be a head coach and have your own team, which he's been able to do at at NYU, one of the prestigious not just universities but also uh, programs in Division Three basketball after being an assistant, um, most recently at at Colgate University, and then of course he spent time in the private sector. All those Penn guys with their warden degrees and whatnot. Um, couple quick things though in regards to basketball, since we are in the off and many of these teams are getting ready to take their overseas trips. Uh, you also had the Bronny James incident. Let's start with Bronny. You know, as of the time of this recording. Nobody knows. You know, we've seen Bronny um, playing the piano. His dad took him to dinner. Thankfully, he's not hospitalized. Looks all good. But, you know, those of us, especially in Los Angeles, if you grew up here, you remember, and Gathers, right? And Gathers went from he passed out when they played UC Santa Barbara, and then he missed some games, then got medication, then was a great player, and then, of course, tragically died. Now, I'm not like... And if if anybody takes this, like I'm painting that as a picture, I have no idea, nor is it really my business, what Bronny James' medical condition actually is that led to his heart stopping and uh, having to be having a cardiac arrest. I can only tell you though, that while USC had a player last year that came back and played, Bronny's different because one, we don't know the medical condition, if it's the same or different Two, I mean, like I, I love basketball. I'm sure he loves basketball, but. Can we be honest? He does not need to play basketball to have an incredible life. Right. And and also like, do you think he's going to get insured? <laughs> Has anybody asked themselves that? Like, oh yeah, yeah. You can like getting cleared is a really hard hurdle, you know, and hopefully it is a very minor, some sort of medical condition they feel like they can manage with medication. But I mean, look, it's hard enough to get cleared when you're like most of us, you don't come from much anything when your dad's a billionaire and the most famous basketball player playing in the world, it, it seems like it's going to be hard to get him cleared. And then, you know, you get people saying, well, you know, you can get a defibrillator Uh, and yes, there have been players come back and play with a defibrillator, but all of these steps make it much, much more difficult for a comeback. Let's just, I mean, all you can do is go like, man, I'm so happy. He's okay. And wait to see. But I do think that while coming back and playing is a possibility I think there's an equal or greater possibility he never plays basketball again. And uh, honestly, like people will will tell you I've been a harsh critic of Bronny James. I haven't. It's not about Bronny. It's about the way in which he's been rated or reviewed. You know, his, his Yelp is not really accurate for how he has played or how he's actually evaluated by people who evaluate. It feels like it's a product of, hey, you won... You see a little bit of LeBron in him. And two, there are people that want to curry favor with, with LeBron. So the critique is not of Bronny. I mean, you you obviously critique his game like you do anybody, but it's more a critique of, again, how people talk about him, all of those things. Um, as far as conference realignment, uh, like we, we are, we're on the brink here, obviously, of the Big 12, feeling like it's going to expand. And if it expands to have Arizona in the Big 12, man. I mean, you want to talk about a murderer's row, Arizona, Kansas, Houston. Uh, I, I think Cincinnati is going to be very, very good. There's the outside possibility of a UConn joining the league. Again, let's leave that as an outside possibility. I think that's a bit of a stretch because the stronger likelihood is that if the Big 12 adds more teams, they don't go east, they go west. And if they leave spots open, they're not leaving them open for UConn. It would be leaving them open for the possibility of like a ACC implosion. And the ACC implosion takes place, you know, they'll go after Virginia tech to Matt, to, to partner with West Virginia. They'll go after Florida state, you know, to marry them with, uh, with central Florida. Um, I think there's some, just some big dogs there in the ACC that you got to take a swing at before you go back and settle at UConn. And I think UConn fans know I, I, I love the program. I love the fact that, you know, they put a ton of money into baseball. Obviously basketball is coming off a national championship. Uh, Women's basketball should be back with Paige back playing for the women's team, but just football is not close to being at that level. And there's the feeling from people in the league that it'll never be at that level. And it, it, you know, it's at like, it's an anchor, you know, you don't want an anchor bringing down the football league. My thought would be, hey rising tide lifts all ships and yeah maybe that's down in terms of football but you know you you have plenty of other opportunities to grow football like i think arizona state is a would be a huge win arizona state to me reminds me kind of a big 10 school you know it's in a major city um, and a growing city unlike some of those midwest cities this is a, this is one of the growing metropolises in the united states and they you know they have over 100,000 students on any given year And the other part to the Arizona schools, which should not be undersold, should not be underrated. I think Florida schools have a little bit of this, but really Arizona schools is every one of the athletic directors I've talked to said, you know, we want to be in Arizona, not just because they're starting to get players in Arizona and it start to become part of the recruiting conversation. Um, And, you know, Phoenix is a growing market. It also leaks into Southern California, but we have alums in Arizona. We have alums in Phoenix, Scottsdale, Tempe. You know, who retire there? Powerful alums that retire, want to play golf, and then want to donate to their school. And now they can see their school play on a yearly basis right there in town. So I, I I think UConn's a bit of a stretch. I think Arizona has been the most open about wanting to reach out to be in the league, but I do think that partnering with Arizona would probably be the smartest thing. And how that affects college basketball, you know, if you've been paying attention. The state of Arizona, you know, is really, really expanding in terms of the number of prep schools and all of the reach of of recruiting is starting to reach there. You know, over time, elite is moving and they're going to have a league of prep schools right there in in Phoenix, in the Valley as well. So I think it's a recruiting win. I think it's a it's an expansion win. And obviously, you know, once you can get Colorado, uh, that begins the you know power five moving to power five that changed the dynamic the one thing i don't like for colorado is that without a southern california school that's gonna change their recruiting and maybe those thoughts are from the past right i mean like players now will go to places they would never go to before because it's about NIL, not where you want to play and where you want to stay. But you know Spencer Dinwiddie's an LA guy, you know, and Colorado with their, once they got in the Pac 12, the idea is we want to, we want to get California kids, California football kids, California basketball kids, bring them out to Boulder. You know, Boulder's a great spot, very chill. You know, that changed the dynamic. And I, I it'll be interesting to see if the Big 10 can benefit recruiting wise from getting into Southern California, uh, especially considering how all in on sports the Big 10 is in comparison to what's remaining in the Pac 10. So. All right, let's – we got some NBA stuff to get to. We'll get to that in the next pod. I got a chance to sit down with Dave Klaski. He's the head coach of NYU. Here's his journey. Your first memories of basketball are where?
3: Oh, wow. We're going way back. Yeah. I think I was – so my brother was in second grade, which means I was about four or five. And I remember my dad throwing me in his first and second grade rec basketball game, being three years younger and just playing as hard as I could. Like, I remember the little gym, Village School, the eight-foot rims. But uh, that's probably my first memory of playing the game that I can, like, picture. Uh, so going back In Greenwich, Greenwich Village?
2: Is that, is that is it Greenwich Village?
3: No, no. Village School- in Homedale, New Jersey, which is where I grew up, okay. so random school, random elementary school in in New Jersey that no one except if you're from Homedale would know about. But that's uh, that's what came to my mind when you threw that question out there.
2: When did you decide like basketball was your jam? I mean, and I'm, I say that because you know specialization starts at a younger age. Now, um, when when was it for you that you're like this is what I like doing?
3: Probably not until I was. 12 or 13. I grew up playing every sport, but uh I started to narrow down. Like I gave up baseball in second or third grade. I played soccer till 8th grade, but I was I was pretty good at tennis. So I kind of thought that would be my sport, but the more life went on, I just really enjoyed basketball more. So I just took a turn and Just started playing basketball more. I I never thought I'd play division one basketball until I was probably a junior in high school and started to get recruited. But I knew tennis I could be good at. I just didn't enjoy the practice. I didn't enjoy private lessons or just hitting 100 forehands down the line, 100 forehands cross court, you know, back. So, but basketball, even practice, I just love competing and and just the movements of basketball. So I kind of navigate or uh, uh, ended up going that way. And I would say probably 12 or 13 was when I really locked in on basketball. I don't want to say basketball only because I still played tennis all through high school, but um, that was when it got serious, I would say.
2: what. uh Who's your high school coach?
3: Tom Stead. What was he like? He's great. I'm still very close with him today. Him and the assistant Tom Pushy, both of those guys, um, they're legends in their own right. Um, just a, b- both those guys, they fostered a program of of uh, being demanding, but also we had a great time, like great culture. We, d- we were very successful in high school. We won two state championships at Little Homedale High School, which has never been done. Um, and those guys are a big part. We're still close today. I'm sure I'll now make them watch this and they'll get a kick out of seeing their their names mentioned. But um both were, were great influences on me, both on and off the court. Um, so still really grateful that I got a chance to play for them.
2: What what was his style like as a coach? How'd you guys play?
3: We played pretty free before you were playing free. So we had like a motion-based offense where there's a lot of passing and cutting and screening, Um, basically positionless basketball. And, you know, I graduated high school in let's say 99. So this was way before it's time. We were firing threes way before everybody knew you could shoot threes and they were more valuable. Um, So we had, you know, uh, again, small, small town in Jersey. I was the only division one player. And then we had probably four, really good division three players alongside of me that were just tough as nails. We were undersized and, um, just got a lot out of what we were, but it was uh it was a fun time. He, he was a demanding coach, but also he was, he was, we were able to be ourselves and, and, uh, express ourselves and, and have a good time while we were winning.
2: What was your recruiting process
3: like? All right, we're going way back here. I like it. Uh, so, I w- I played on a really good AAU team called the Central Jersey Hawks um, all throughout my life. And by the time we were sophomores in high school, it started to become clear we were we were pretty good. We made the the national championship, which back then there was the nationals. I'm sure you remember this. Uh, there wasn't a hundred different tournaments. It was you won the states, you went to the nationals, and that was where everybody, all the best teams were. So we we made the finals my sophomore and junior season. And we had guys, I and mean, I'm going to throw some names out, but I'm sure. Not many people can remember these guys, but like Taj Holden played at Maryland. Sean Exani played at Rutgers. Andrew Toole, who people should still be familiar with in the basketball world. Um, co- head coach of Robert Morris played at uh, Elon and then transferred to Penn with me. Uh, a guy named Chris Adams played at Elon. Um, and then we had some stints of Dante Jones playing with us a year and Rick Apodaca from Hofstra, and he played professionally in Puerto Rico for a long time. So we knew we had a good team, and I think uh, for me – Probably the end of my sophomore year, I started getting some, some calls, a lot of IVs, um, some lower level division ones, and some high level division threes. And, um, again, I, I didn't think I was good enough. I I thought I was too small, you know, to this, to that. But as the seasons went on and I started getting real recruitment from the pens and the Harvards and the Yales, I realized that I may be able to play division one basketball. So, um, the Penn coaches in particular, Fran Dunphy and Steve Donahue, who's now the head coach of, of Penn, uh, did a really good job of just being everywhere. Like Coach Donahue and Coach Dunphy at a ton of my games. Uh, I really liked the, the fact that Penn had a tremendous business school. I had a feeling I was going to get into some type of finance or business um, after I was done playing. So they just did a really good job. I, I think I uh, ended up committing before my senior year. So I was done by probably September or August or September of going into my senior year, um, locked and loaded for Penn.
2: How good were your grades? I mean, the, cause
3: pretty good, pretty good. I I was, I was probably, uh, an in on own at that time. Now, 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 not, not so much, which is hard as it is to get into these academic schools. But I was, I was like almost all A's taking APs, um, I don't remember, my, I was somewhere around 4.0. I, was, I got a lot of A's and some B's in there. And then I'm a math guy, so I, I, I did really well on the, the math part of the SAT and, and uh, was able to find my way into Penn.
1: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals.
2: Where's that, where does the academic, it, did you, was it a strong push from home? Like, because oh, yeah. it's interesting, you know, raising kids now as opposed to raising kids then. And, you know, I uh, I come from a, a Jewish family that we, there wasn't really a discussion over, hey, this teacher's not nice or I don't understand this. It was the get good grades. <laughs> what if I don't? There is no don't, you like, you get good grades, right? And uh, my kid's mom, she she was a self-starter. So she didn't, she was the first one to go to college in her family. So she's not as much of a pusher, right? For you, you achieve incredible things academically. Where does that come from?
3: My parents, I, th- I think it's probably similar households. It was academics come first. And if you have to miss practice, That's. I mean, that was always a threat. I never actually missed practice, but but plenty of times, my dad and my mom would be like, "Yeah, if you don't do your work or you don't like do your best, you're you're not going to practice. Like that's all that matters. You're not going to be professional." Um, I mean, growing up, I didn't think I'd even play at the level I did. Like I said, so it was it was really just how our house was orchestrated. Uh, you know, my, my older brother went to Penn, I went to Penn, and my younger sister went to Columbia. So it was, you know, clearly part of what we were, were taught and, and thought about growing up. But it wasn't in a way, you know, I've been coaching now at, at high academic schools for a little over 15 years. And you come across all different types of families, right? You come across the kids that are just completely pushed by their parents and they get free and it's like downhill, right? Because they were never self-motivated. But I I, I really think about this and talk about this a lot with people, somehow my parents, and maybe it was my parents and my older brother, they were able to do it in a way that we were self-motivated. Like I wasn't doing it for them. I was doing it for me. I, I just wanted to be better than everybody at school. <laughs> that was that was kind of the reality. I was very competitive. I wanted to be, whatever I did, I wanted to be better than people. And that included getting a higher math score. <laughs> that included getting a higher math score. So it, it is a tricky thing. I don't know, as a parent now, same thing. I'm going through it. Like, all right, how can we motivate them to want them to be the best they can be without shoving it down their throats where, you know, as soon as they're old enough, it's going to, they're going to almost rebel and do the opposite. So it's the daily fight. I got little kids now, so I'm I'm, I'm in it, (laughs) but uh, I think about it all the time. Uh, My mom and dad were able to foster that within us. And can we do that to them in this generation, which is completely different.
2: It is a very different generation. So you show up Penn. Uh, how many, because, and people know, like, Ivy Leagues have JVs, right? There was, uh, you know, I mean, it's more how many kids they get in than some sort of number. So how many were in your recruiting class?
3: We had six in our recruiting class. Big class, really good class. So um, the two most high-profile guys, a guy named Ugano Onyekwe and, and Coco Archibong. Um, were just not Ivy League players at the time. They were they were awesome. And then uh, myself and a guy named Andrew Coates and another Dwayne King and then Harold Bailey. So the four of us, and even Dwayne King. Dwayne King was, as a recruit, not really um, an Ivy League recruit at the time. He was a little high, more high profile. But we had six big class. But like you said, Penn had a full varsity team and a full JV team. But those six guys were recruited for varsity, only. And then there might've been one or two that um, ended up playing JV. I, I don't even remember who else was in our class that played JV. I don't know if there were any, but it's, that's common at, at Ivy. So,
2: so for, for practice is JV at practice no. and they're like, no,
3: it was, it's a separate entity. Now appended back in the day is of the JV guys, they would get called up for one home game so they could play. Uh, now they didn't always get in, but if we were up a lot, they'd get in and it was one of the cooler moments uh, for them to get in. The crowd would go nuts. You know, they, they would, they would dress for one game um, and they would just would be rooting for blowouts so they could get in.
2: Awesome. What do you remember about your first, like, I remember distinctly, I remember pick a ball leading up to it, like when I was at Notre Dame, I remember conditioning. Um, I, I remember my first practice as well. But what's it like? Like, a, let's say it's a fall at Penn. You guys are very good at the time. Right. Uh, Dump has it rolling. What, what is like, OK, at a high major school? I mean, I remember Oklahoma State and Notre Dame, like Oklahoma State, for example. Uh, we'd run at six in the morning. Then we'd all go have most of us have breakfast together, go to class, whatever. In the afternoon, lift, you play. Right. And you, you do that. And then you have individual workouts on other days. Like it's a full week of, yep. of stuff. Um, and then, you know, because you only have, we only have one team and you have like 12 guys and you have a couple walk ons, the pickup ball devolves after like, like mm-hmm. first week back, everybody's super excited. There's new guys kind of, you know, trying to, everybody's trying to establish who they are, what they improved on or who the new guys are, whatever. But then like you can only play against the same guys so many times before it just <laughs> gets up. mundane what's it like at Penn?
3: I don't remember exactly that detail. I'm very impressed. Uh, I do remember some of the memories and thoughts that I had freshman year. And, you know, I'll start with just, you come, like you said, you come as a freshman and there wasn't all the social media. So you didn't really know that much about everybody. Um, So I remember like playing pickup. Those were like the first memories and just being like, I am getting my ass kicked. <laughs> like these guys are stronger, they're tougher. My moves aren't working, and I was just like, "Man, this is hard." And then I do remember our first, um, like our our four man workouts. You couldn't do full team then, but the four man workouts being like a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of skill work, but then dump. If you've ever played for dump, you know he just wanted he just like screw all that, just compete, like just compete. So we would compete. Um, so I got through all those and, and again, was ready for the season to start. And then I remember my first practice and like, he had been involved in the four man workouts, but he basically just watched and the assistants ran the show. And then day one, I remember he just like, it's dumb. Like, and, and he's, he's, uh, he's, he's a politician. He's the greatest guy ever off the court and on the court, but, I didn't know how intense it was going to be my first practice because he recruits you and he's mild mannered and he speaks softly and slowly with a lot of substance. And then I get in the first practice and he's screaming at guys. I'm like, Oh my God, this is, this is what college basketball is. This is, this is crazy. Like who is this guy yelling at me uh, in, in day one? And I just remember the game moving so fast. I had six turnovers in practice, which like, for my game, I ended up leading the, the, the league and assisted turnover. I wasn't a turnover guy, but I just remember like the, it was way too hard for me. And Coach Donnie, you pull me aside after the practice. and be like, that's not who you are. Like, Just slow down. And now as a coach, I always give that advice. I'm like, look, your first day or your first week, it's going to seem like the game is moving so fast. It's okay because the game will slow down even after one week, but especially as you keep playing in this system and against the same guys. But I just remember being like, oh, my God, this is this is really hard. Uh, what am I getting myself into?
2: It's interesting because uh, uh, it was probably about three weeks into my first year at Notre Dame. And another Penn guy, Fran McCaffrey, he had he recruited me to, to Notre Dame. And I was just getting my ass kicked. Now, part of it was – One, we didn't really play a style that was conducive. And our five-on-five stuff in practice, John McCloud was like, put 26 seconds on the clock and we're playing half-court basketball Mm -hmm. because, you know, back then it was a, what, a 35-second shot clock, right? And, and, I mean, we're running like a motion offense. And, you know, my high school program, same thing. I was coached by Andy Ground. He went on to win state championships in junior college as well. He's a very good coach. And so you think my dad was a college coach. You think you practice at a level of intensity and then you have like no idea. Oh, yeah. Plus the bodies are so much bigger. You know, you can't really avoid being screened nearly as well. Mm-hmm. And again, like you said, this is the old motion offense days. And you're just, you think you're guarding your guy and then boom, boom, boom. And the guy that I was brought into like, you're going to beat him out. Don't worry about it. He is kicking. add had more wipes his name and he is kicking my ass like on a daily basis. And, uh, at Notre Dame, we had the blue was the first team, the gold was the second team, and I used to come in every day, and my jersey was gold. And I would I made up a song on the gold again. Just can't <laughs> wait to play some defense with my friends. I can't <laughs> wait to get on the gold again. Right, like I was, I was so I was like second team. Finally, I went into Franny, and I was like, Franny, you got to send me home. I suck. Like, I'm just not fucking good. Like I'm sorry. I know you guys thought I was good, but I clearly I can't beat out Admore White and i was supposed to be and he's just kicking my ass <laughs> so i i remember I, I remember but but then i remember it turning once games mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. but penn's so different right as good as you guys are you're not playing guarantee games where you can thump somebody early in the year so what was as a freshman what was your early experience like when games started
3: so actually this is again because I was getting my butt kicked every day by the seniors and the, the older guys, our opening game was against Kentucky at Rupp. Um, so, so it wasn't like, uh, you know, you walk into, uh, like you said, a, a guarantee game or a division three game. We, we started playing against Jamal McGlore. Uh, I think Tayshawn Prince might've been on that team. Um, Saul Smith was my matchup though.
2: So, so if you thought, if you thought that first practice was something, You walk out in the big blue nation and that was when they had it
3: rolling. Oh, they were rolling. They were were rolling. And, um, but we were good. Like we had, we had a really good team returning. They just won the Ivies and we brought in this like awesome freshman class. Um, so we battled, like, I think we might've been winning at halftime, but I actually, my memory is the opposite because like Mike Jordan at the time, he, um, he was a senior and he was Ivy league player of the year for one or two years. And just like a dog, like one of the best defensive players he'll ever play against played professionally for 13 years. So he was guarding me every day in practice and I got to the game and it was Saul Smith and like, oh, this, is, this is easy. I don't have a, a MJ on me anymore. This is uh this is a cakewalk. So I actually had like a little bit different experience. Now, the difference was you, you get by him and Jamal McGlore is standing in the back line, you know, and you're not, you're not getting any shots off, but, uh but that, that was um, a really fun experience to play at Kentucky. And they ended up beating us by probably 10, 10 points or so, or I don't even remember how much, but we were in the game. and It was really competitive. And I, I got in, which again, I was shocked about, but I ended up having a very big role that year. And, and um, you know, like you said, once games came around, Then all those things that you're good at that lead to winning that might not show up in practice start to show up like taking care of the ball and taking good shots and and guarding and getting loose balls. Like all those things, which is what I did as a fifth option on that team was extremely valuable. So I found a way to get on the court early.
2: What was dump like in games?
3: Dump in games the intensity was still the same, and uh, like he—he's now a, a little bit different of a coach in this era. He's one of the smartest guys we'll ever meet, just in terms of how he thinks. But uh, he was intense, and you know it, his 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 best line that I remember is, you know, if you if you started the game poorly, he'd just look at you and be like, "I wish you would have let me know that you weren't ready to go. Then I would have started somebody else." And you, you're like, I, "I I thought I was ready, <laughs> but and and maybe not in that." Tone maybe it was a little bit louder and aggressive. Has and any loud. kid, by
2: the way, ever gone like, "Hey, coach, I'm not ready to start, start, <laughs> Jimmy"? No, like, no th- things that don't ever happen. No chance. You know, but, it's like that. Yeah. I mean, you see that dude, is that 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 ad. I don't. I'm where the ball goes out of bounds and it's off the kid, and he turns to the ref and he's like, "No, it was off me." <laughs> like things that just don't happen. Like I know they yeah. should happen, no. but they just don't.
3: Yeah. No, he was he was great. He I mean he he was a guy that just got the most out of you. You played so hard or you didn't play. So that was that carried over to games and and uh I think um that was what he did. He he got the most out of his teams and his players.
2: How? How? Because like I felt like uh that was the magic to Coach Sutton mm-hmm. was that, you know, I mean we didn't run anything super special right we had really good players i mean we had good good players um and a lot of them we were we had transfers before transfers really in vogue right but if you tried to find like what's the secret sauce it's like you just played way harder than you ever thought possible
3: mm. Yep.
2: you know and that was really it like hard and tough and like that's it and um I do think there's like a, that's, that's the secret sauce to, especially the college game. Like that, that's the secret sauce, right? Yeah. You got to not turn the basketball over. There's a toughness element to that, but there's also a skill element to it. You know, you got to take good shots. You got to be, yep. coach got to be demanding to a point. Right. And some of that has evolved and changed, but getting you guys to play just hard. And I've heard coaches say like, well, you don't coach effort. Like i Frankly, that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, you may not coach it, but you demand it. Yep. right? And so his way, it was just an everyday in practice sort of thing where, um, one, there's a little bit of fear of God in him. And I don't know if dump had this right, where you just, I don't know why you're just scared to death of the old man. And then, uh, and then you recruit competitive kids, right. Where they're all out there, you know, we're all fighting after one bone, um, And then there's the constant demands in practice of kind of everybody of just, Hey, let's get after Let's like harder, harder, play hard, play harder, play hardest. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that was his style. How did dump get you guys to play at that level in terms of energy
3: wise? Very similar to what you just said. I think again, different errors and I'd be curious to go to one of his practices. Now I went a couple of years ago, but uh, the fear of fear of God (laughs) of knowing, you know, he was intense and you wanted to please him and it wasn't like it is today. Like he said some things that it, it, that I never took as um, offensive. It was like, all right, I, I got to do better. And, and he had that way of doing that. I use this example a lot, He he, his way of motivating was he never demeaned you. He never, um, you know, uh, made you feel like you were two feet tall, but he like had this way of, driving you to be the best you could be. And, and a specific example is like you'd be on defense in practice and and somebody would get the ball and and, and they'd go middle on you. And we didn't give up middle at the time. And he'd, he'd be like, oh, hold on, hold on. Like, D- David, what, you think Dwayne King can get middle on you? He's like, see, I think higher of you than you do because there's no way Dwayne King can get middle on you. But you clearly don't think as high as I do about yourself. No chance that happens again. And like you're like, yeah. How the heck did Dwayne just get middle on me? He's not. Ha- that's not happening again. <laughs> you know, like so. It was one of those things where he'd call you out, but it wasn't in a way that made you. It was. It was like making you feel almost
2: more. Yeah. That was. That was. That that wasn't any set. That wasn't. <laughs> my. I've told this story before. My. It's like our first day of practice, and we would do one on one contain on the side. Right. We did a series of defensive breakdown drills every day. One on one contain. Uh, into you know drive to the seal, which was the baseline help, and then rotate, and then we worked on post double and that stuff. Anyway, so we're playing one on one contained on the side, and you know you got to get a stop to get the ball, then for you to play offense. And uh, somebody had been scoring. I think Joe Atkins, our two guard, he been scoring on guys. So I get out there and I go, "Hold up, coach, we force in middle, or we force in baseline." What do you mean? I go well. Which way are we making him go? We're like, guard your man. <laughs> like, yeah, but I, I get a coach. But like, there's gonna be help. There's four other guys in the game. Like, where are we send them? It's like, you guard your man, or you come help me, coach. <laughs> like that was it. You guard your man, or you come help me, coach. Figure it out. I was like, yeah, but coach, like, like guard your man. <laughs> And, uh, so, you know, then the guys please say like, yeah, we're forcing baseline. We got help. But like, yeah, don't ask him that. I and mean, that was, that was, that was his way, you know? And he would just, he would just, it would just very, very matter of fact, in a very stern kind of Southern way. Yeah. He was like, you can't guard your man. Just help me. <laughs> coach. You a college man can't make that open shot. Come help me coach. Like that was, yeah. that, that was, yeah. that was his way of saying, you're going to, you're going to sit on the bench. Come help yeah. me coach. Um, how good
3: was that team? Pretty good. Uh, I'm thinking. So that was my freshman year. Um, I think Ken Palm goes back that far. I want to say we were like in the like forty to seventy range, which is really good. Um, we ended up like twenty one and seven or twenty one and eight or something like that, and then lost in the first round to Illinois. Illinois, I think a four thirteen matchup or maybe it was a five twelve. Um, but we had a really good team. And uh, I think we all were hoping we could knock somebody off in the tournament, but it just didn't, didn't work out for us.
1: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer, Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss playing dirty sports scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon,
0: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The Ivy League. Then, very different, right? It was basically you guys and Princeton. Yep. Because this is before Donahue goes to Cornell and got them going. Yep. Right? Dartmouth really hasn't been competitive. Browns, not really. They're probably better now than they've been, uh, but they've never been at the top of the league. And Harvard, of course, is before Tommy, and um, <clears throat> they were never really competitive. It was kind of a two-horse race, right, before Yale. Was, Yale's good oh. now, right? Um, what was the Ivy League like in terms of it's got the unique Friday-Saturday schedule, right? There's all these unique – places, you're playing at the Palestra, which is like a palace. Oh, let me just ask you that. First double triple header at the Palestra, what do you remember?
3: There's nothing like the Palestra. So I, I remember on my recruiting trip going to watch Kansas versus Penn, right? And Jeff Boshi, and I think Ray for France might have been on that team. Um, and just being like, holy cr- this is... This is 98? 98.
2: 98. Okay, so hold on, 98 was... 97 98 was it was you went in the in 9798 so I played
3: 9899 99, 2000 so it must have been 98 99
2: okay so yeah that team had not Rafe had Chenoweth.
3: Chenoweth, that's the guy anyway, Kenny, Kenny Gregory Hoshy, lives down the
2: yeah uh um Kenny Gregory did a young star
3: I think who
2: was the Nick Bradford uh that team oh, Bradford Gooden was until the next year. Gooden was until yeah, my, we played them. The next, the, next, year. Yeah. the next year had three stars. Next year had, um, had Collison, Heinrich, and Gooden.
3: Oh, yeah, I remember we played them. We
2: smacked night. the shit. We smacked the shit out of them twice, them? but it was only
3: oh, it was only because they were
2: young. We were like old men, and we kicked the shit out of them. We beat them by thirty three and nineteen.
3: My goodness. Um,
2: but but ninety. Hold on, this I love this challenge to it. Okay, so what was there? Because they beat us that year. They were top. They, we were uh, top Ryan, Robertson. Ryan, Ryan
3: Robertson. Ryan Robertson. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh Ryan Robertson. Who's there? I don't know. I don't remember them having a young stud. was Kenny Gregory, Nick yeah, Brad. They were thinking Boshi,
3: because Boshi was young at that age. Yeah. Freshman, yeah. sophomore.
2: Yeah. They beat us on a really bad call at their place. And then they played us. We played them in the big, tall championship game in the tournament. And we couldn't score. We were so tired. big I beat Fifty-five, thirty-seven.
3: 37
2: Fourth game in four days. And mm-hmm. and you're playing in basically in – it's basically like fall gallon. But, and we just got beat. Yeah. But that's what, where the energy came from the next year for us to crush them. Right. Um, right. But, yeah, I mean – so the, the thing about the palestra and Gallagher, where I played, was like this, though, too. But palestra, the roof is, you know, it, it's like a cathedral, right? right? But still, those older places that are smaller, a team like Kansas comes in, and goddamn, they look like giants. Yeah. They look like the biggest dudes ever. You're like, oh my God, these they should, the court's too small for them. Yeah. That's what it looks like.
3: Yeah. It, it, it's a shame, though. It, you know, I, I don't even remember who the coach was back then, but that would never happen today. Like Kansas would never go play Penn. Roy Williams.
2: After. Roy was the coach.
3: What's that? Roy was the coach. Roy was the coach. Yeah. Like when I was there, we had Maryland, who ended up winning the national championship with uh, with Blake and Taj Holden and Baxter, and they came to the Palisade. We got a home game against Maryland. Like how how cool is that? That just it doesn't happen anymore because because uh, yeah, they all play
2: neutral sites. It's just
3: too risky for them. It it makes no sense. But the Palisade, it's not that,
2: though. That that's the thing though. Yeah. It's it's really it's like such a misconception.
3: You think you know? Let me hear why you think it's a misconception. I'm going to try and argue the other side.
2: Um, I mean, now – and obviously, it's very case-by-case case dependent, okay? But for the most part, if you're that good, it doesn't matter. You're going to win 25, 30 games anyway. I mean, re- 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 you know – I mean, there's the the one year where, like, oh, my God. And if you play a road game, like, it doesn't really hurt you if you lose a game because you because the other team played out of their mind. I mean, you got to be careful about it, right? Like, you're not going to go, like, hey, we're going to go play at Southern Illinois – And then we're gonna go right. Like you got to be careful. That's what
3: I mean. Like so, our pen teams were always pretty good. Yeah, but you guys
2: were you guys were good, so it didn't hurt your numbers. Nobody,
3: it it didn't. And and I'm
2: sure you know, like Roy Williams did it every year, but he would do it to take a kid home, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: that's different. Now they do a neutral court. Now that game would be played at you know whatever the uh, downtown center, right? Yeah, whatever that name is now. But for them, like I'm gonna think I'm gonna like combine my Penn years and my Colgate years, Colgate was very good. Like we were, you know, hundred Ken Palm or 115 Ken Palm. So you're probably, if you're a top 20 team, you're probably going to win that game. But you know, the, the, the spread swings a little bit because you're playing on the road. And if you lose that game, it wasn't a big enough loss that it made sense for you. If you won, yeah, you're supposed to win, but if you lose that game, like that's, that, even though the numbers say it doesn't hurt you, it's no, sh- I get it. The mystique. I get.
2: It. I, I think um, I wish there was a way where they could do like a some sort of you know, like I don't know if the computer or whatever, but they like you have to play one game a year. Yeah, where, where you put your name in the hat and then it just draws it and you just it can be <laughs> random. That's great, right? I love it. I love it. It'd just be random, but I, you know, I, like I'm trying to think. We played. Played a home and home with TCU. When I was at Notre Dame, who did we play? Do we play anywhere? Played at Indiana. We got smoked. Played at Xavier. Uh, this was back when they played in the Cincinnati Gardens and we beat them. That was a huge win. We played Loyola, of Maryland and uh, beat them. They were not very good. That was a weird schedule thing that had to yeah. be. There had to be somebody we were recruiting or something. Right. We literally played on the road to Loyola, Maryland. That's, that's crazy.
3: Yeah. That doesn't, that crazy.
2: doesn't happen. Yeah. Crazy. 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 But the other thing is like, once you get into college basketball, like, that's the stuff you love. Yeah. Like, playing in these arenas that are a quarter full is blah. Yeah. I, I don't I, – I much – I remember playing at TCU. I remember playing at Xavier. I remember, uh, you know, we played at UNLV twice, two years in a row on the road. That was a great one. I, I, I pulled Coach Sutton aside. We're walking off. We beat him two years in a row. And I said, Coach, I don't believe a team at our level has ever played road games against one opponent two consecutive years like yeah. you love vegas that much he's like son billy baino couldn't organize a fist fight
3: <laughs> <laughs> i was dying i was dying was oh shit
2: i was like okay noted um was it your senior year you guys lost oklahoma state
3: yeah yeah so i the garden was- right yeah. At the, at the uh, TD, at uh, whatever it was called back then, the Fleet Center, maybe, or uh, yeah. Boston. Boston
2: Garden, whatever. But Yeah.
3: Really- yeah. That was, um, that was probably our best team when I was a senior. We had um, an awesome old team at the time. And then we had a couple young guys, um, like a sophomore, Tim Begley, that was pretty good. Um, so we were, we were super excited. We were, we were like the trendy pick. That was a 6-11 game. And, and we actually loved the draw. I'm not going to lie. When it came out, we were like, this is awesome. We wanted to play Syracuse. Yeah, you would get, get Syracuse second game too. We wanted Syracuse first round. That's how crazy we were because they played zone and you could not yeah. play a zone that they would have smoked us. I don't know. they would have to come out of the zone, I think, but we would, um,
2: Oklahoma state was up. That was the national yes. championship year. Oklahoma state was up 17 at halftime. I guess. Yes.
3: But anyway, we got, we got that drum. Like, Oh, awesome. They haven't won a road game all year. Like they're young. They're they, you know, they play kind of a grinded out style and then we got in the game, and Tony Allen, I think, was able to guard three of us at one time. And Victor Williams, little point guard, I don't know if you remember. Yeah, him, I know it. He just like we had no chance of keeping him in front. So between the- he's
2: so freaking quick, so quick. So that was so my senior year, he was his redshirt year.
3: Okay. And okay.
2: And I mean, like now he would throw a ball at least twice a practice that would hit. You know that now they have the rotating boards, but back then they had the little plastic boards, and he would. <laughs> Just throw a ball to nobody when it hit the board. <laughs> and uh, he was definitely a mid-range guy, more long-range But he was, I mean, li- without any question, I guarded Alan Iverson. He's the quickest dude I've ever tried to. I
3: believe it. I I would say the same. I never guarded AI, but I had no chance of keeping victory. I was a pretty good defensive player. No chance. No chance. No, he's so fast. It was a good game. I mean, it went back and forth. I think they ended up, uh, they ended up winning by a lot, but it was like a two-possession game with like three minutes left, and they made free throws, and we couldn't hit a shot. Uh, so disappointing, like strangely enough, we had we went three of my four years and we never won. And I, I I kind of am disappointed with that because we had some monster teams. We had really good teams and we never could get the either the matchup or the playing at our peak in the tournament. We just could never get it done. And it's like just looking back, it still haunts me that we couldn't get it done. Do
2: you like the Ivy League having a tournament? now?
3: I love it. I love it. I wish it were all eight teams, honestly. And, and now I'm in the UAA in division three, which is the only division one, two, or three conference that does not have a a tournament. And I'm pushing, pushing a tournament, but logistically, it's a little bit more difficult in our league, but we had my junior year, we tied. So in the Ivies back then, when there was, was no tournament, if you tied, it didn't matter the tiebreakers, you had a tournament. So we tied with, there was a three-way tie with us, Princeton and Yale. So Princeton and Yale played first, and then the winner played us in the finals. So you kind of had a mini tournament, and I just remember that championship game that we played Yale to see who was going to go to the tournament was electric. It was ridiculous. And I was like, why would people not want this? So I- I'm glad they do it now. There- there's nothing like a conference tournament. It's just, it- it's so fun, especially at the lower levels where the winner, it's like winning in, losing out. Right. And there's just so much. The
2: at- other side to it though, is like, if you win your league, and especially the Ivy league's a double round Robin, right? So you yep. play everybody twice. If you win your league, Why do you have to go beat everybody again?
3: Because I believe that the team that should go is the team that's playing the best in March. So if you started two and two, and this happened to Penn a couple years after, uh, or maybe it was the year after I graduated, they started 0 and 2. And it was like, boop, they're done. But they weren't, they might have been the best team in the league, but you just, it's it's a really hard hole to, to dig out of. And again, I'm not saying that it's not warranted whoever wins the regular season is the best team in the league. I'm just saying there's something to be said for a tournament style. You lose, you go home, you win, you're in, come to play. It's what March Madness is all about to a degree. And yeah, you might not always have the best representative of your league, but playing that tournament where the stakes are high, the crowd's into it, everybody understands what's going on. It's just it's fun, and I, I I feel the same way right now in in the UAA. Now UAA is a multi bid league, so it's a little bit different, but it's still the the tournament is just so fun. You watch these games in in March of these lower levels, and the gyms packed. I love when the host hosts and the gyms packed, and the I like that as well. I think that's okay. I think that's
2: the appropriate reward for
3: for yes. winning your
2: league, right? Yeah. You get you get the home game. Yes. Yeah. I like, like the Patriot League has that. I've always, yeah. always, always loved that.
3: It's just so hard to win in Hamilton in March. Like, you know, I think uh, Boston knocked us off three years ago, but it's probably a 15 or, you know, close to 12 to 15 game winning streak. And it's just, it, there hasn't really even been a close game because we packed, the, we packed the house and the fans were crazy. It's a small gym and it's just, it's a really fun atmosphere that you don't always get in a 14 game regular season, even when it's a, a big game
2: one last thing about Penn um, you know, things are so different now, right? Teams practice in the summer. Um, they practice in the summer, obviously at summer tours as well. You have individual workouts. Ivy league doesn't have any of that still doesn't have any of that. What was your, what was your, or your internships when you were at Penn?
3: So my freshman and sophomore summer, I stuck around Philly, which there's nothing like, Philly summers. At least I, when I was there. Because what would happen is you'd get the guys from Drexel, the guys from Temple, the guys from St. Joe's, and they'd all come and we'd play pickup. So
2: you Didn't everybody play pickup? Didn't everybody play pickup at Drexel? Like well, yeah. when I was there, I was there one yeah. summer. I think it was for Maccabi. And uh there was the the big run was at, at Drexel every day.
3: It rotates. I remember playing at Drexel sometimes. I remember playing at Penn. And the great thing is, is if you didn't have 10, like some, the the way I got better between my freshman and sophomore years was like king of the court playing against guys like Ashley Howard and um, Lamar Plummer, who was on our team. Uh, And again, they were, they were kicking my butt, but I learned and learned and just got better. And that's how my defense got better. That's how my ability to get by got better. But just all summer, just playing against the local Philly guys, we'd have runs with all different type type players, um, you know, different schools. Pros would come back, so it was great. It was it was a really good experience. And then junior summer, I got an internship in New York City, and that was a fun summer too. That was a little bit different of an experience, um, but because you're working a lot of hours, and then I just you
2: play. I mean, how did you, how did you manage playing ball?
3: So I found pickup games wherever I could. That summer was a little bit different. Like pretty much every summer I worked on my game, you know, you're getting shots up, you're working on different things. That summer I was just competing. Like I didn't really, I didn't really work on uh, too many skills. Like I just found games and I used to play, um, there was like a game at a little, little gym like near Houston and Thompson. And then there was, uh, I used to get, I used to go to the NIAC and play there with a lot of the ex Ivy, Ivy guys and pros Um, so I'd lift there and play there and just find like wherever I could find games. I I tried to just get, get out and play.
2: What was your internship?
3: I worked for Merrill Lynch in a rotational program, um, where you sit on a desk for six weeks then you rotate, not six weeks, probably, uh, probably it was probably eight weeks total. So probably two, two or three weeks at a time. And, uh, you're basically on an eight week interview. So you're not doing a whole lot but you're always you know on edge cuz you you're trying to get the job for the next year sure that was that was but it was fun did I mean, you like it i loved it i loved it strangely enough i stayed in the NYU dorms with one of my teammates and um you know you're working you're having a blast you're 20 21 years old living in the city um it was fun it was a, it was, a, it, was a, it was a lot of fun but
2: i mean the, i mean the 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 actual the, job. the the walls the actual job the wall street job so as it's an like,
3: intern, you're not, you, you, you weren't allowed to have any real responsibilities, right? You can't trade, you can't uh, talk to client, you know, you, you can't really do anything because you're not certified. So in essence, you're the go get guy, right? Like, Hey, I need a coffee. Go get me a coffee. I need lunch. Go get lunch. That that's like your main responsibilities. But on top of that, you're trying to learn, you're trying to connect and you're trying to show everyone how hard work you are and how, um, smart you are and it, without being annoying. Like I was in the opposite. You know, I, I was also working on wall street and having interns and you don't want somebody sitting next to you asking a million questions, but you also want somebody, you don't want them just sitting there doing nothing. You, you have to find the balance. So that was always a tricky thing is, okay, how can I like show that I am inquisitive and want to learn, but not be too annoying. Cause you know how annoying people are when they sit next to you. So You know, so that was that was basically what you were trying to do is just meet people, network, have them like you, show that you can do the job and do it well and and are a hard worker. So that's always the advice I give when people do these internships.
2: That's it for part one of Coach Klaski. Wait till you hear how the NYU job came to be and what it's like for him to uh, to be a head coach for the first time. Oh yeah, and by the way, like all of these intricate stories about how how Colgate got it going, how they become so dominant in the Patriot League—all that's upcoming in the next episode. A reminder: The Doug Gottlieb Show is daily, three to five Eastern Time, twelve to two Pacific, on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeart Radio app. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball.